Good morning, Disciples Church. I'm excited to be with you this morning to dig into God's holy word. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the letter of James, you'll find it in the very back of your Bible, uh, hidden away just, just after the book of Hebrews, just before the letter of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to uh, use one of ours. We have them there in the back of the room. Um, love to encourage you to bring your Bible with us. We love taking time to really dig into God's holy word here at Disciples Church and study it verse by verse to know him and what he has for us better and better. If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home and make it yours. No more precious gift we could give you than the word of God. It's a joy to be preaching this sermon series in this new newest season that we're in as a church and our new campus and um, just our sixth week here as we're taking our time to slowly work through this awesome letter, this letter of James. We're titling this whole sermon series, Faith at Work. And today's sermon title is very simple. It's temptation. We're going to study just three verses, verse 13, 14, and 15. So let's begin there. Let's read the scripture we're going to study today and uh, pray that God just would, would wash over us and be at work in us in a mighty, mighty way. James chapter 1, 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is an important passage for us because all of us are tempted. Temptation is a common experience of every human being, non-Christian and Christians alike. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that temptations are common to man. One old theologian said that even when we are saved, we must remember that our baptism did not drown our flesh. Until Jesus comes again and makes all things new, temptation will be a present and common reality of every man, woman, and child. So the study of James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 that we will embark on this morning is is vital so that we can be equipped rightly to understand and then combat temptation as we continue our earthly pilgrimage and mature more and more to honor God with all that we do and not give in to our sinful fleshly desires. So with that, Let's dive into our passage together. He begins with verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. We need to stop and just define temptation because there's layers to it and how that word is used in different contexts even. There's two main ways the word temptation is used. One is just to point to a generic test, a crossroads of choice to reveal one's true and or superficial faith. And so, in that way, test or something we see God use all the time. We'll come back to that in a moment. But there's another 
application of temptation, and it's probably what you think of most often when you hear the word, and it is what we're going to focus on today, which is a lure to sin, an enticement or a solicitation to evil, to do evil. It's absolutely essential that we understand the difference, because God does indeed test his people all the time, because it gives way for our faith to be revealed and to show true faith, to let it be on display, to let it mature and grow us, and or to reveal the counterfeit, the person who claims faith, but in the face of that test, gives in and shows they're not truly a person of faith. This is what James has been highlighting in verse 2 through 12 as we've been journeying through the early parts of this chapter. God never lures us or people to sin. This is the work of the devil. This is a work within us as fallen creatures. We'll get back to that in a moment. But let's first acknowledge the fact that tests are put out there for mankind all the time so that God can show who his truly devoted are. A test or a crossroads of choice. A way to see your faith or devotion to God if it's true. God uses tests all the time to refine us, grow us in our faith. Sometimes they're momentary and sometimes they're seasons of life. But God does not tempt people in the fashion of meaning lure them to sin. This is the work of the fallen and or our sinful nature. Let's look further. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In all of Holy Scripture, this verse right here is a huge verse in doctrine and understanding who God is and how he works. Referenced by theologians and the attributes of God all the time. James says we must not blame God for our temptations in the meaning of being lured to sin. Why is this an issue? Why is he saying don't blame God? It's an issue. It's worth pointing out because we're really good at blaming God. Really good at blaming others. Something that we mankind have been struggling with from the very beginning. <clears throat> Let me point this out to us. Turn with me the very hold hold where you're at in James. Flip, I'll make it easy for you. Flip to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter three. Let me just show us the fall and and see what happened in the wake of the very first sin of mankind. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So God was clear that they could eat of all the trees except one. And so Satan right here is using words to twist and to manipulate to surface, to try to bring about some kind of doubt, to set the table then for the temptation. To break into what is understood as truth, to make war with that, so that then they might give way 
unto sin. Reading further, verse 2 through 5. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the lie. There's the counter to what God said. The false statement is given. The crossroads now is before Adam and Eve. The temptation has been laid in to lure them, be like God. Forget what he said. Let me tell you the truth, and he's lying. So they are to believe God or to believe the tempter. Now can I point out how easy it is for us to start telling ourselves that when we're being tempted or longing for something, that it's really not that bad. I mean, surely they, they did this. They're looking at a, a fruit tree. And, and this knowledge doesn't seem to really hurt anyone. And no one's really going to be impacted by this. Isn't that the line of thinking that we do all the time when playing with the temptation? We, we kind of tell ourselves that this is fine. This is not a big deal. Reading forward, verse 6 through 12. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But but the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So on the surface, it looks like she, he did this. No, not me, her. It looks like he's blaming her. And in one aspect, he is. Just like we've all become good to do. We love to push the blame off on someone else. He's not taking ownership for the role that God gave him to be the head of the home, to, to lead his bride unto the Lord in all things. He shirks that and says, she gave it to me. And in our sin, we don't want to be exposed. The Bible talks about our sin hates the light. We don't like the light of truth. And so often what we'll do in the wake of that is we'll lie or suppress the truth to divert the pending consequences or judgment, because we're scared, or because we're just selfish people. 
We're out for ourselves. Eve does this also in her response. Notice in verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But what I want us not to miss here is that Adam's sin runs deeper than not taking ownership and pointing at her. If you read carefully, who is Adam really blaming here for his falling into temptation? He's blaming God. The woman whom you gave to be with me. This is ultimately your fault. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam is saying, you made this woman and look what she did to trip me up. And Eve is saying, you made this serpent and put him here. Look what he did to trip me up. Now, on one hand, it's easy for you and I to kind of sit back and laugh at the insanity of Adam and Eve blaming God for them falling into temptation when he was very clear with them about what not to do and the pending consequences. And from the youngest age, though, in our sin, when we're caught in sin, we love to deflect, don't we? I mean, our youngest children are ninjas at this. Brother did it, or sister did it, or, you know, whatever. Elsa did it, or whoever else they want to deflect and put it on. The dog did it. Teacher, the the teacher was not clear. Mom, Dad, this is your fault. You, you, You put the cookies there in front of me. Like, however we love to push the blame onto other people. And don't we really still do this all the time? If we're honest, we're caught in sin. And so maybe we see that, yeah, yeah, part of it's on us, but, but part of it's also on our coworkers. So we, we go there first. Hey, coworker Jimmy, or, you know, my friend's influence meant this, or the, the bartender had the sweetest smile, you know, or, or whatever these things are, that we put it on something else. We put it on someone else. Someone else. It's someone else's job. And they messed up. It's not me. So, so James is in the pocket here. He's, he's Church, we've got to see what he's focusing on here because we need it. This is so central. So central to life. Robert Burns, a, a famous Scottish poet, once wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Robert Burns here is saying, articulating what what people have often believed throughout history of mankind. Going back to the first couple to say that God made us with wild and strong passions, and therefore, what else could he expect but that we're going to give to, to temptation? So let's come back to the question. Why is temptation never from God? We love to blame. We love to blame him. We love to blame others. But specifically, why are we never to blame God for temptation? And we have to start 
with who God is, his character, his attributes? And the answer is because God is good and God is holy. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Again, it's important to clarify, James is not referring to testing here. God tests us all the time. James is referring to the lure of sin, an enticement to sin. God is not lured to sin, and he himself lures no one to sin. God is holy. God is good. These are two of his attributes. His attributes of God refer to his character, his person, his nature. They refer to the perfections of God, the being of God, the qualities of God. So let's consider these two attributes for a moment. God is good, meaning All that God is and does is perfectly good. And he alone is the final standard of good. There is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in him. And nothing can be added to it to make it better. He is good. An old dead theologian said it well. A.W. Pink said, He, speaking of God, is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. Capture this now. The creature's good is a super-added quality In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less than good than he is. As there can be no additional addition made to him, no subtraction from him. The other attribute that speaks to this is the fact that God is holy. And what that means is that he is distinct, he is separate in a class by himself. He is set apart. He is morally pure without any sin. He is holy in relationship to every aspect of his nature and being. 1 John 1.5, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So God is absolutely pure without the sin, the stain of sin or evil. Therefore, he doesn't sin or do evil. Therefore, he doesn't tempt or lure others to do evil. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. We see a great example of this in Christ. God the Son, who took on flesh, 
and in his early ministry days, went to pray and fast in the wilderness for 40 days. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully man. And in this is this marvelous mystery. And so there's true experiences within his flesh. So because he had not eaten for 40 days, he's truly hungry in his flesh. And Satan shows up in Matthew 4 and begins to tempt him. Hey, you have the power to turn those stones to bread. Surely you're hungry. Just do that. And, and, and other global temptations, far beyond what you and I have faced. And with every one of them, Jesus perfectly corrects the lie with the authority of Scripture and turns unto glorifying the Father. Does not fall prey to the temptation. Cannot be tempted. For he's God. And models that obedience apart from sin for us in this, in his flesh, in this time. He cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, James says. Now, I want to be thorough here because there are many ways that God, in his sovereign rule over all of his creation, uses sin and evil and sinful and evil people or even demons to accomplish his holy purposes. The key is that God doesn't do evil or tempt anyone to do evil himself. For example, the most evil deed of all of human history is the murder of the only innocent person to ever live. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was truly in every way innocent and yet murdered for a criminal's offense. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, was ordained by God. Not just the fact that it would occur, but every individual aspect of it. But he, God, did not do it nor is he to blame for it. Acts 4, 27-28 testifies, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did the sovereign will of God, and yet God did not do it. He did not do the evil. He did not do this atrocious thing. The actions of all the participants in the crucifixion of Jesus had been predestined by God, yet the apostles clearly attached no moral blame to God, rightly so, for the actions resulted from the willing choices of sinful men. Peter makes this clear in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You 
crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In one sentence, he links God's plan and knowledge with the moral blame that is attached to the actions of lawless men. They were not forced by God against their wills. They did what they wanted to do, what their sinful nature wanted to do. Willing choices for which they were responsible. We must understand that although God did raise up evil events to come about, we see it throughout Scripture, it is very clear that Scripture nowhere shows God directly doing anything evil, but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Scripture never blames God for evil, and neither should we. This is an important detail that we come to understand by His authoritative word. If we're to say that God himself does evil, he would, we would have to conclude that he is not good and, and not righteous. And therefore, he is not really God at all. Yes, it's true. God is ultimately over all things that happen, but he does this in such a way that he upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results for which we will be held accountable. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it well in, in the mystery of how these things work together. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than deny one aspect or the other, simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should accept both in order to be faithful to the teaching of all of Scripture. So this is where we, mankind, are arrogant. We start to go, in my head that doesn't add up, therefore I, the created, have a better idea of how this should work or how this did work. Church, that, that is sin. That would cause you and I to say, I have a better idea of how these things work than what God has declared in his holy word. So we, as Wayne just said very eloquently, submit to the authority of his revealed word and submit to the reality that he is God and we are his created. We do not blame God for evil or sin or sinful temptations. He himself tempts no one. So let's say it one more time. God never directly does anything evil, lures or tempts people to evil, but rather the evil that is done in the world is always through the willing actions of moral creatures. This leads us to verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is the source of temptation now. Notice that the lure, the enticement, is not first and foremost outside. 
but it's inside. It's not the thing that we often, I think, think it is, that look at all these things that are tempting me. And again, we're so quick. See our tendency to want to blame. But instead, it's from within. This is what James reveals to us here. And this is the difference between God and his creation. He is perfect and holy and pure in every aspect of his nature. And while we like to think really highly of ourselves, another part of our arrogance, we are sinful, fallen, fleshly people. The root of our corrupt nature is called inherited or original sin. The definition for original sin is this, the inherited guilt and corruption of man's nature is a direct result of Adam's sin. Because of God's system of headship, when Adam sinned, in some sense, each of us sinned with him as our federal head, our representative. His guilt is our guilt. In addition to the legal guilt that, in, that God imputes to us, we also inherit a sinful nature and the other consequences brought on because of Adam's sin. And I don't have time to get into all this, but I'll just quickly remind us, for those of us, again, that want to point to Adam and say, well, who picked that bonehead to represent us? And the humbling answer is God did. And in that, then, God's pick is perfect of who our federal head would be, and who are we to say he's not Again, great arrogance to to fly in the face of that choice. And the other thing, to pick at the concept of federal headship, to say, well, I don't like that system of being represented by Adam. And I would say, if you have a problem with that system, then you have a problem with the very system that brings salvation. Because it's by the authority of another, and only by him, that we are saved. So to throw one out is to throw the other out, and then we have nothing. So we just don't go there. Again, we trust the authority of Scripture to define and teach us and correct our thinking in these ways. As a result of Adam's sin, we enter into the world with a fallen nature. This original sin, sinful tendencies, desires, dispositions in our heart, we're born with. It's inherited in us. A good way to say it is it's a morally ruined character. In speaking about our sinful condition, King David lamented the reality of our condition and saying, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. A similar idea is affirmed in Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from, from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Original sin that we are born with manifests itself throughout our lives into actual sins you know, that we do and think and feel that violate God's perfect moral commands. Digest this this morning because it's important we understand it rightly and what James is clarifying here. We are sinners not because we sin. Better theology teaches us 
the Word teaches us, we sin because we are sinners. Born a sinner. James 1.14 Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The root of all of our enticement the rock bed of it, is our fallen nature. It is not a desire to honor God at its core. It is a desire to satisfy our flesh, our selfish desires. The desire is inherently an evil thing. Sometimes. In that, the thing that sometimes we're faced with and the way that desire works is, is lust or gluttony or theft or abuse. But I want you to see clearly this morning that that desire is not always necessarily, the thing that's before you is not always necessarily evil in itself, like lust or theft or abuse. Sometimes it's a very good thing. It's an over-desire for a good thing that is not inherently evil, that is our problem. See, the Greek word for desire here is the word epithumia, which is the word evil desire, but again, the, the, the understanding, maybe the better understanding is that it's an over-desire, so it's not necessarily always for something evil. Epithumia is both an evil desire and an over-desire, or an excessive desire. In other words, it's desiring something evil in and of itself, we've covered that, or it's an over or misplaced desire for something that is good. It's an addiction or a lust for something God has made and called good. Calvin, John Calvin said it this way, and I feel like he really hits the nail on the head. He says, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want but that we want it too much. There's the over-desire. There's the evil in the desire. The object we often desire is good, but the evil lies in the lordship of it or the supremacy of it or the way we find our identity in it or our ultimate joy in it. It's really the root of our idolatry. Taking a good thing and then making it an ultimate thing, letting it own us. So, you could take the good thing of caring for your body and, and it can become a sinful over-desire in your life in an effort to find your personal significance in your body. There's the sin. I find my significance in that instead of in God. Or, or, or the good thing of your career becomes a sinful over-desire in your life in an effort to find your sense of security through your career. Nothing inherently evil about your career, as long as that's not like, you know, robbing banks or something crazy. But it becomes an over-desire, it becomes an evil desire when, again, you, you look to your security in your career, and then you lose your job and you feel undone. You feel like dying. Or it owns you every day in a way that it shouldn't. There's the sin in that. You're not looking to God for that. You're looking to that thing, that created thing. The good thing of raising your children. 
can become a sinful over-desire in your life when you use it to find your purpose for life. You make it an idol of your life instead of finding that in God. Again, the sin in your desire can be for a very good thing that you have simply inflated to worship or, or find your hope or your identity or your significance or your purpose or your security in it rather than in God, the Creator. Again, the verse, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own epithemia. Could be evil in and of itself. It could be a good thing that you've overinflated, thereby making it sinful. We must see the deep reality that temptation is always at our doorstep in that our sinful nature makes us prone to be lured to be satisfied in the flesh or in the creation rather than in God, in his perfection. So so James is now going to build on this warning by describing what comes of it. So he says in verse 15, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The presence of temptation is not sin. The presence of the lure is not sin. It is when we give in to the lure of the temptation and let it have its way in our life that it's sin. When we give ourselves over to it, it becomes sin and therefore our penalty Will temptations find their way in our thoughts, in our life, in our day, every day? Absolutely. The question is, what do we do with them? Do we let them have their way? Do we let them have their hook into us and take us along? So this is what James is emphasizing, specifically in the fact that giving in to temptation is not a casual thing. It's not a no-big-deal thing. It is a life-or-death thing. Let me be clear about what I mean there. The Scriptures are clear that the penalty of sin is death. This was the original warning on Adam and Eve and is the ever-present reality on all who come after them. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We earn death because of sin. So we must take seriously then the temptations that befall our doorstop every day. They are a matter of life and death. And we also must be clear with here, before I continue in that, we have to understand and remember that sin is sin. All sin is a transgression against the holy deserving authority of God. His holiness is the standard, and everything that is sin falls short of his holy standard. So we should not make light in our hearts 
or lives, any sin, don't play that game of belittling what we want to call little sins. We should take all sin seriously and see that it earns death and eternal separation from God. If there was ever an example of this, consider what actually happened in the garden in the first sin. They ate a piece of fruit. That's a far cry from digging a child's heart out with a spoon. Right? Did you see how we do that there? We count one as no big deal. We count the other as gross that you even said that from the pulpit. Both are cosmic treason against the holiness of God, who is the standard, who is the standard bearer. We must realize sin is sin that earns us death. We must stop the game of measuring how we feel about it. That is one of the great tools of the enemy to get you to play with the lure. To get you to invite the snake into the playpen and play with him a little bit. We let our logic that's fallen, our feelings that are fallen, contemplate, consider, dabble. Sin will have its penalty, and it will always mean death. Now, for those of you who are going, Pastor, what, what is there? No, none of us survived that then. None of us have a hard time even getting through the sermon without having feelings that are sinful. Whatever is going on, you see the hopelessness of this. I, I hope you do. I hope you feel the weight of it, the crushing weight of that reality. Because that death you will either pay or Christ will take it on on your behalf. <laughs> and there is the light of the gospel. There is the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. There is the sweetness of what's transforming people's lives in this room. Not religion, not, not church attendance, but a, but a clear understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ to set us free, to pay for my sin, and, and not a scene of that where I kind of I hang my hat on it, that I'm a Christian, I said the prayer, I went to church when I was young, I, I did the D, I'm good. I don't, I don't really have a daily conviction to honor God and grow in Christ and be an, an active participant in the things of God. I, I kind of hang my hat on it. Can I just argue that that's not Christianity? I, I don't care how many times you've been told that it is. That when you really get the gospel, it wrecks you. It takes over your life. It, it, it is the most marvelous, life-altering thing. I don't care how successful, how far along in life you are, how many friends you have, 
how, how much you think you've got it going on in the system you're currently in, it, it wrecks you in the most beautiful way to see and savor Christ in a way that I've watched grown men, successful men, weep with just an overwhelming sense of the gospel and what God has done to set them free and just say, God, here's my life. And begin to make every change to truly submit themselves to him that the scriptures can bring forth. Peter said it well in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. You were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. Speaking of the gospel salvation, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold. They were insufficient. But with the precious blood of Christ, that like a lamb without blemish or spot. The good news that changes everything if we trust in him, truly trust in him with all of our lives, that God's the Son put on flesh was unmarred, holy, perfect in every way, spotless. He paid for our sins. Our past, present, and future sins. If you walked in here this morning crushed by life, overwhelmed by the darkness of the things that you've been a part of, that you would see clearly that Christ's blood is big enough to forgive your worst. And for you to think that God wouldn't is to spit on the cross of Christ, to somehow you declare it's insufficient, that your stuff is too gnarly, not true. Who are you? in light of the power of God to forgive your worst. I want that truth, I want that reality to wash over you this morning. Do you realize that God the Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, do you realize that he was also tempted just like we are? He did not give in to it. For he is God, for he is perfect, for he had to be the spotless lamb on our behalf or his ransom, his payment was insufficient. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. The lure to sin was put before Christ in ways I believe we don't even really understand. I don't know about you. I've never actually sat with someone who could offer me all of the world if I would just give in to some sin. I, that, my temptation's never been that deep. That's what Christ was faced with. Without Jesus' perfect, sinless life, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus' substitutional death on the cross of Calvary, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus' resurrection, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no relationship with the good, holy, and just God. Amen? 
Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us, speaking to the church, the saved, from the dominion of darkness and brought us, transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, we who are in Christ, the scriptures say, were once slaves to sin. Romans 6.17 We who are saved by Christ and trust our lives to Christ were in the snare of the devil, says 2 Timothy 2.26. And according to Ephesians 2, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Dead, because we earned death. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. See see how all of that confirms where we've been this morning? And one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. If you are here today and not truly saved, not truly ever trusted your life to Jesus, seen your sin, confessed it before God, and given your life to Christ, trusted Him as Savior and Lord, then the command of Scripture on you is to repent and believe and be saved. And, and yeah, in that moment, you, you still don't have a lot of answers. That's all right. The scriptures call you a baby in the faith, an infant in the faith. That's fine. The greatest place you could ever be is saved and set free and beginning that journey and maturing in the word of God unto a life for God, uh, with the people of God. Some of you who I just met, some of you I've known for a long time, I'm praying that in God's perfect time, you finally reach that place where you stop hanging your hat on religion and and truly believe with all of your life and be saved. Praise God for his saving grace. Only by the grace of God are we saved. Praise God for the mighty power now in Christ to fight sin and temptation. All right, now here's where it gets good as we prepare to go. Look at Romans 6, 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For we who have died have been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So yeah, while we're still in our body of flesh, in this time and place, temptation will knock on our door. Our flesh will want it. We'll want those, 
those fleshly desires to get played out, to give in to those things. But you are now empowered in Christ to fight that and not give in to it, to turn from it. The worst thing you could do is have Jesus as Lord and then live like you don't have him. To live your life by giving into the lure of the flesh, giving into sinful tendencies of the mind, instead of living in Christ, His power to rise up and overcome temptations of the flesh in this life. Not let them pull you down anymore to begin that new path of repentance today. Paul makes a great and essential declaration in 1 Corinthians 10.13 here at this morning church. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. First of all, for those of you who say I'm all alone on an island, stop it. That's your sin. That's your pity party. Stop it. You're not on an island. The scriptures say it again and again and again. You're not alone. Stop making it sound and telling yourself that you are because you're not. that no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, it's not like some super temptation that came your way and like that's why you gave in. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will guard against the outplays of your war with flesh and against the the attacks of the enemy, he will guard you. Never be able to be faced with something, the temptation of sin, beyond the ability that he's given you in Christ to overcome it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Will you hang your hat on that truth this morning and leave this place knowing that the power is within you in Christ? You're never without the power to overcome temptation in Christ. You don't need something else if you have Jesus. You don't need more money. You don't need more drugs. You don't need more free time. You don't need more of whatever the world is telling you you need. Jesus is enough. He is the answer. He is the power. And to throw that away, to pursue the ways of the world, is to not walk by faith and work out your faith. It's to turn away from it. He is the way. Now, I'm not saying don't don't walk away and say, Pastor said there's no other help. In God's beautiful, common grace provisions, there's helps. But those are not the answer. The answer is Christ. Power is Christ. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Is your faith at work in this? Do you proclaim this in the face of your temptations or your tempters? Can I just finish with this? While temptation at its core is what James described in our text today, in other words, it's not something else. It comes from within. It's our fleshly longings at work in a broken world. It is a sad reality when men can see a beautiful woman who is dressed appropriately and in the root of 
our flesh, undress her in our mind. It is the reality that a sweet treat can be on display in the restaurant. But that doesn't mean you have to buy it or that something is making you buy it just because it's on special. That is to blame something else. Now that said, there are many people and demons who will work overtime to put, to put forth things that are tempting. Things that are sinful. Lies that say, just have me and you will be fulfilled. These are things that we must work to remove from our view, from our homes, from our circles of influence as much as possible. Okay? You don't get, like, a shrinking ray gun, so, like, when the billboard is out of bounds, you don't get to, like, shrink it down. Like, okay, so there's a reality. There are things before us in just life. But there's also a lot that you choose to invite in. And I want you to be attentive, especially, to those things. To remove them. Why do we invite in temptation? Why do we invite the snake into the playpen and let it have its way among the sheets? Can, can I highlight something that we often overlook? Surely you've been influenced or enticed by another person to sin, right? A friend tickles your ear to partake in a way you shouldn't. We call it peer pressure. Okay. Do you realize that peer pressure at its root is your fault and not theirs? Do you know why? Because they're your peers that you invited into your life. Do you, do you see that? The, it, it's the job you continue to say, I have to stay in. It, it, it's, it's the team you continue to play on. It's it's your favorite show. You have to finish. No, you don't. That much of that peer pressure is self-induced. We invite it in. You don't have to go there. You can make changes to those relationships, especially if they're causing you to trip up in putting that temptation before you all the time. Proverbs 1.10, My son, it is sinful Men entice you, do not give in to them. Other translations say, turn away from them. Church, we must do serious business with who we allow to have influence in our lives. Again, I'm not saying, oh, the pastor said that the church just needs to get out of the world. I'm not saying that. Do you know me? You know I just hung out with some of the sleaziest guys there is yesterday. I drove 400 miles to go spend the day with them. I'm not saying that. Who are you letting have influence on your life? That's the key. Who are those peers that you let have that influence? We have to be mindful of that. The role of your community is essential if you're going to truly fight sin and turn away from temptation. Because it is in these that who will pay a, play a major role in either pressing you into Christ or into sin. The author of Hebrews says it well, Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin. This is a major way we bless each other by doing life together as the church. So I encourage you to not make your attendance on Sundays your only way to grow, but to figure out how to get involved and walk with us and be known and know others. This is the job of us as your pastors and elders to hold firm to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Are you sheep without a shepherd who knows you and walks with you? You're vulnerable then, according to Scripture. This is why it's essential that you are truly plugged into the local church to be consistently taught truth and reminded of the power of the gospel to know each other and walk together in true community. My prayer is that you would lean in all the more to each other and into God's word. May God be glorified as many more come to know the power of Christ to fight sin and to push off temptation. Amen? I'm going to finish us in a unique way today. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to dismiss us right from that prayer. Will you stand with me as we do that? Father God, I am thankful for this gathering this morning for the ways in which you supernaturally work to have someone invited or to compel us to be here today. That we would get to sing of your holy name, to pray and participate in acts of worship, in our song, in our prayer, in our giving, in our time this morning, to fellowship with one another, that maybe even as we dismiss, that we would not run out of here, but maybe take some time to shake some hands, get to know some people, begin that process to, to be encouraged or prayed for. But that you, God, would, would continue what you began in us this morning. You would continue to stir our convictions about these things. You would not let us just put it away. But that we would, we would slow to truly digest and apply as our theme scripture on our video bumper for the sermon series says that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. I thank you for James' exhortation in just these few verses to have a right view of where temptation comes from and what it is and that we would have a right view of it in our daily lives and combating it in the power of Christ to lean into community and really walk together in these things and consider those who we've invited in to have influence over us and the damage that that potentially does to our testimony and to our days. And most of all, God, I'm just praying for those who you are tearing apart heart of stone to give them a heart of flesh, to give them a heart of faith, to trust you and believe in you like never before, to truly be saved. What a glorious thing that would be. We pray again for all the children from our community that will gather here this week um, and that you would equip our leaders and our volunteers for loving them and teaching them the word. We look forward to midweek continuing our series and being back next Sunday for our ongoing work in this sermon series and all that you have in between. We are yours and we go with the joy of the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.